Merry Christmas, everybody, or at least Merry Christmas lesson. As the old spiritual says, go tell it on the mountain, Jesus Christ is born. We'll discuss Jesus Christ's birth and the events surrounding it from what will hopefully be a new perspective. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. As I do frequently on the program, I'm going to take a question from one of our listeners, and I invite your questions either through our Facebook page, and you can send something through the inbox, or via email, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. This question this week comes from Anne in South Jordan, and she asks, If I may ask, what would be your best suggestion on how to learn the scriptures on a deeper level? You seem to have a significant grasp. So the way I'll answer this, Anne, and I this won't I don't mean this the way it sounds at first, is to say that you don't know my understanding of the scriptures. And uh, so let me explain that. Uh, my my understanding of the scriptures is not after I do the preparation for each week's lesson, is not my understanding of the scriptures that I walk around with all the time, every day. I don't I don't uh, do these from memory. I spend hours each week preparing for what I'm going to say uh, for the broadcast, and so the there I don't I don't know that there is a substitute for spending time reading about the scriptures, and it's a sacrifice, and it cannot be done for the entire canon of scriptures for all of the standard works in one week. So um, I I guess my first suggestion would be to say. Forgive yourself for not understanding the entire huge, multi-thousand-page body of Scripture right now today. It's, there's nothing wrong with not having a deep understanding of every aspect of the Scriptures, but what you can have is a deep understanding of this week's lesson, and you're already doing that. So this is, this is how to do it, is to take it week by week, break it up into chunks, and go as deep as you can. And... And also to keep your life in balance. Um, but I, I remember being on my mission and thinking, man, when I get home, I will have all day, I will have all my free time to dedicate to studying the scriptures. And so many of the missionaries in my mission felt this way. We thought, wow, if only I had more time. You know, we, we have one hour of study in the morning, and then we have to go, we have to study with our companion, then we, and then we have to prepare, and, and then we have to go out and work. We don't have any more time that we can spend actually learning about the things that we, that, that just barely touch off the interest, but it feels like we're just wetting our appetite in the morning. Well, when I got home, uh, needless to say, that didn't materialize. Life took over, and I didn't spend all my free time studying the scriptures. So, I guess my point is, that if you can keep that interest alive, that's a wonderful thing. If, because uh, what I did was I, I allowed that interest, that, that fascination that I had with the scriptures on my mission to fade at least somewhat. So keeping that interest alive is really key. And the fact that you have that desire is a very good thing. It means that God is working in you. Uh, so that said, let me, let me give you some of my, I've, I've done this, I did this probably two or three times last year. And uh, so let me give you a list of what some of the resources that I use to prepare the podcast. First of all, the church has a number of wonderful resources, including the institute manuals. So one thing that I did do on my mission was I took my own personal study time, and for an entire year, I spent a half an hour a day reading the Old Testament uh, institute manual and then reading the Old Testament passages that were associated with that. And I also used that as language study because um, I read the manual in Portuguese and I read the, the Bible in English, obviously. But, um, well, I shouldn't say obviously. Some missionaries may read the Bible in their, in their language, but I didn't. Um, so the, the Church's Institute Manual has the LDS perspective on a lot of what you might call difficult passages or things that could have several interpretations, and that's always good to get. 
Secondly, I'd like to talk for the first time this year about a website called BibleHub.com. And that's a website where you can read the Bible. And that sounds very simple until you get to Bible Hub and you recognize the, all the different ways there are to read the Bible. It's a wonderful, wonderful website, which is why I think it starts with www. That was a terrible joke. Uh, it, it's a wonderful website. And you put in at the top, you put in what book of the Bible you want to be in. You find your verse. And then you can click all the different translations of the Bible, but you can also click, whether it's the Old or New Testament, you can click Greek or Hebrew and see the English transliteration next to the English words next to the Greek or Hebrew words. And then you can click on the Hebrew word and you can, you can look it up and see if there might be a, uh, an alternate translation. And I'll give you an example in today's lesson. In fact, I, I was already going to do this, but there is an example in today's lesson of how to have how to use Bible Hub to do just that. In my own case, I've taught many of these lessons before as a gospel doctrine teacher. And so I look back through my files and if I have a previous lesson, then I pull that out and read through my notes on that. And that will um, give me often what I thought were interesting insights at the time. It will remind me of any of those. And I also have a, f a couple of blogs that I read. One is by a, an LDS scholar, uh, language scholar named Ben Spackman, and that's on Pathios. Uh, it's called Benjamin the Scribe. I don't know the, the web address, but if you, if you were to look for that, you'd probably find that. And he prepares each lesson each week, so you can read, you can read through his lessons. Um, as long as we're in the Old and New Testaments, one resource that I really enjoy is called the Bible Project. And this is something that takes, they make little eight minute or 11 minute videos on each book of the Bible. And they give you a perspective on exactly the, the cultural historical surroundings and the overall big picture of what that book was trying to accomplish. Uh, so I really enjoy the Bible Project. I also listen quite frequently to a podcast called Exploring My Strange Bible. And that title comes from the idea that um, the Bible should be strange to us because it's, it's from such a different time and place. That is not a Latter-day Saint publication, and so it does not follow our curriculum, uh, but very helpful nevertheless. So those are some ideas of things you can do, and you can find your own. This is such a big world nowadays that uh, the internet gives you everyone's ideas on everything, and you'll find your favorite things. But the point is, keep that desire alive and keep studying every week, and over time you will find that you have an amazing understanding of the, the parts of the, the scriptures for which you have done that much preparation. You can't avoid it. Thanks for your question. I was a little intimidated when I faced the prospect of discussing Luke 2 because it's probably the most beloved passage chapter of scripture anywhere, especially in the King James Version. So I, I, I decided to approach it from a different perspective, as, as different as I could get reading the same scriptures as I've read every year since I was a child. And I think that's part of the point is when we, as I mentioned last week, when we read these stories over and over again every year since we're children, uh, this, this happens in the Book of Mormon, too. Because we've been reading it since we were children, we think that things are normal that if we look at with as if we were reading them for the first time, we think, why is that in there? What's going on here? So the way that I accomplished that in this particular passage was uh, I kind of imagined or I, or I asked myself the question, how do we usually read these verses? And in my opinion, what we usually do is we picture ourselves on the outside as an observer of all the events. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have been there on that Christmas night and to watch all of these things unfold? And instead, what I did this time was I tried to read the, these scriptures in Luke 2 and Matthew 2 as if I was Mary and Joseph. How were they feeling as these events unfolded? And as we'll discuss, um, that they're the ones who had to have given their accounts of these events at some point. And so it really is, these are from their perspective. And what we always do is we take them ourselves out of the point of view characters' heads and watch from a distance, which generally is the, 
is the opposite of what you want in storytelling. So here we go. We'll go with uh, Luke 2 first, and then we'll do Matthew 2, and we'll see, we'll see if we come up with any new insights into the scriptures. So I'll start. Uh, so in, what I'm going to do in Luke 2 is just point out the, the things that jumped out at me. You know these chapters, and so we're going to skip over them as quickly as I feel like doing. And I'll point out the things that, that stick out to me. The first thing that stuck out was in verse 4. Um, David, being from the house and lineage of David. So, uh, of course, all the world has to be taxed. And Mary and Joseph end up having to go to Bethlehem. Let's talk about the house and lineage of David. This was the prophesied line of the Messiah. So, the there are people who have theorized in, that in ancient Egypt, or, or sorry, ancient Israel, and perhaps all the way from the time of the Old Testament into the New, the reason that Hebrew women feared being barren so much was that if they were barren, there was no chance the Messiah could come through their line. Think about that for a moment. That One of the main reasons they wanted to have children at all, or, or couldn't bear to not have children, was so that the Messiah could come through their line in some way to be a progenitor of the Messiah, this promised king. Uh, and secondly, this is the royal line. This is the line with the authority to rule. Uh, God gave David, we, we spoke last, in one of the, the lessons on David last year, we spoke of the Davidic covenant. God gave David the covenant that there would always be one of his descendants on the throne of Israel. So it's the royal line through Judah, through David, and somewhere the Messiah is going to come along. So people in David's line thought, "Am I not only am I the one who is going to be, uh, not only am I descended from royalty, but then somewhere below me is possibly the Messiah. Am I one of the peop- one of the descendants of David through whom the Messiah will come?" All of that, all of that leads me to think that Joseph going to Bethlehem would have been a very popular choice. Meaning, how many other people who weren't from the line of David or were from uh, maybe more than one tribe had descendants from this or uh, ancestors from this tribe and ancestors from this tribe and they think, well, which, where should I go to? Which town should I go to to be taxed? Well, you know what? I'm from the lineage of David, so I should go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a t- is a small town. Uh, the The accounts that I read place it around a thousand people at the time of Jesus, but it was probably many times that there would have been tents outside. I remember a gemology fair that my father used to be interested in in Quartzsite, Arizona, and this little town becomes this huge place every year for a certain amount of time every year. And if you go visit. Uh, you're you're mostly outside of town, even though you're in Quartzsite, Arizona. And that's, I don't know whether that would have happened to Bethlehem, but I can imagine a lot of people wanted to associate themselves with the line of David. So, first of all, think about this. Joseph is going to a place where his extended family is from. And the the idea is that we, we always think, um, well, well, we'll talk about what the in meant in a, in a moment, but Think about that for a moment. That first of all, it's a very popular choice. Second of all, that David's going to stay with family. All right. The next thing that jumped out at me was, uh, while while they were there, the days are accomplished that she should be delivered, in verses five and six. So, let's let's talk about the common idea, the the common way this story is told, and it's Joseph and Mary traveling on a donkey while she is nine months pregnant, and they arrive. And she is in already in sort of the beginnings of labor, and they're looking around for a place to stay, going from inn to inn, knocking on doors, and nobody's taking them in. But uh, they would have they would have arrived. It, it seems to me like the way I read this, there's no other way to read this verse than Joseph and Mary. Joseph knew Mary was pregnant, then they took plenty of advance notice. They left with weeks to spare and made the three-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They would have known better than to travel with Mary nine months pregnant. And we don't know, we don't know whether Mary got to ride a, ride a donkey or not, uh, whether that would have been jostling for her. What's more comfortable, to ride a donkey, donkey or to walk? Um, 
possibly some combination, but we don't know exactly how they accomplished their travel. Okay, verse 7, there was no room for them in the inn. So where exactly were Joseph and Mary staying? As I said, Joseph was probably staying with family, but if you, uh, if you now let's try a little exercise. Go to BibleHub.com, and at the very top, put in the book of Luke, and then put in chapter 2, and then go to verse 7. And then click on Greek, and you will have a reading of this verse, and you'll have the Greek next to it. And if you click on the word next to in, uh, then you'll come up with a Greek word that is kataluma, and then you click over, over in the upper right, you will see a link to Strong's Concordance. And it has a little number next to it. Every word in the Bible has a number in Strong's Concordance. So you click that link that says Strong's number, whatever it is. And the, the entry in that, uh, then it takes you to this. And this is very valuable. I, have, I actually have a physical copy of Strong's. And it's probably five or six inches thick. It's the size, almost the size of uh, an uh, an unabridged dictionary, one of those huge dictionaries that you only see in the library because nobody would ever carry one around. So you have, and it's a very expensive, very valuable book, and you have access to all of this right here on, on Bible Hub for free, wherever you go. So uh, Strong's, Strong's Concordance would tell you that in is only one of the translations of this, and almost all the ones there have guest in them in some way, a guest room, a guest chamber, a guest house. So think about Let's think about, and I did a little bit of research on, what uh, these accommodations would have looked like. So um, the, a town the size of 1,000 people, what kind of inns are they going to have? What kind of hotels are they going to have? So we, we've always imagined Joseph and Mary going from motel, basically what it looks it amounts to a motel to motel, knocking on the door. Hey, do you have any rooms? Right? And the innkeepers are, are saying, no, we're, we're full book, fully booked. Go away! Nowhere in this chapter do we find the character of a mean innkeeper. So let's imagine something else. And I, I can promise you, based on my research, this is a lot more plausible than the idea of the, some, somewhere some mean, keeper, mean innkeeper that is telling uh, Joseph and Mary to go away. Joseph and Mary are staying in a large one-room uh, one or one-main-room dwelling. And this is on the top floor of a two-story dwelling, the bottom floor of which is used to keep animals, and the top floor of which is used for the family to dwell in. And in the center of this, or in, the, in one side or one big corner, is the main room, and then there might be other rooms off of, off of the side, perhaps some bedrooms, perhaps some storage or private rooms. And uh, there would have been no bathroom inside. So they're staying there for weeks. They come weeks in advance, and they're staying with Joseph's extended family, who is also hosting a lot of Joseph's other extended family. Everybody who can fit is staying in this one room at the top of this dwelling. And Joseph and Mary are staying there. They're sleeping there, but Mary is extremely uncomfortable there. And then all of a sudden, Mary goes into labor. And they go to the owner of the house, and they say, what are we going to do? Mary's in labor. Everybody's around watching, and Mary's like, oh my gosh, I do not want to give birth in the middle of this big crowded room where I've had no privacy now for, for six weeks. And so the owner of the house says, okay, um, you know, I can, guys, this is all I got. The only thing I can think of, it's, it's going to be smelly and it's going to be drafty and it's going to be dirty, but you can go downstairs and be with the animals. But at least you'll be alone. At least you'll have some privacy. And Mary, you know, Joseph looks to Mary and says, well, what, do you, you know, what do you think, sweetheart? And she exasperatedly nods, and so he helps her go downstairs, and then now they're in a stable. That to me, now this, I just imagined that entire scenario, but that to me is a very plausible scenario as opposed to the implausible scenario that, we, that we're treated to almost every year. So think about that next time you're watching a, a Christmas pageant uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, with having a story being told about Jesus, but um, anyway, that there's also nothing wrong with getting a little bit closer to the facts. Um, all right, so the, now we have the shepherds. They're out there what, tending their flocks by night, and then suddenly there was an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came upon them, 
let's think about this angel for a minute. Who is he? Well, that as soon as I asked the question, I thought, of course, it's Gabriel. Who else has delivered any news at all related to Jesus Christ to anyone? Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. Gabriel appeared to Joseph. Gabriel appeared to Mary. Why wouldn't it be Gabriel leading the host of angels on this night? Gabriel is obviously a very important angel as far as delivering the news about Jesus to people. So, uh, just interesting. I thought I think it's it's kind of interesting to think that Gabriel appears to these shepherds. What is the first thing that Gabriel says? Fear not. I went back and looked at the other times that Gabriel appears, and he says, "Fear not." In some way, every time. So people, when they see an angel, they're afraid. And uh, so then I I started thinking, what are people afraid of when they when an angel appears to him, it seems like it'd be a wonderful experience. Why are they so scared? Why does he have to say, fear not? Or, or he, he would have spoken in their uh, modern vernacular, what to them was their vernacular. And so uh, he, he might have said, calm yourself or don't be afraid in our, in our, to one of us, right? Uh, why would he have to say that? The, the only thing I can think of, and I went back to Isaiah chapter 6 on this one. If you remember when Isaiah was called as a prophet, he is he has a vision of himself in the temple looking at God, and all of a sudden, he's deathly afraid. He thinks he's going to be killed because of his impurities. He's in the presence of God, and he suddenly realizes how unworthy he is. So I don't know whether that's what's going on for each of the people that see Gabriel appear to them, but I'm, I'm guessing that, at least for the in the case of Zacharias, it seems obvious, but in... Uh, in all of these cases, I'm guessing they find themselves impure, and yet they weren't, right? God was capable of purifying Isaiah and qualifying him for the vision he was having. And so Gabriel chose his, the people that he was speaking to, and they were worthy, for the, they were worthy of the visions that he was giving them, and uh, they didn't have to be perfect. So an interesting, an interesting insight there, I thought. And then the angel says to the shepherd, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings. Of great joy. Now, I've, I've, uh, I've made. I was thinking before I prepared this lesson. I was thinking I'd talk a lot about good tidings again. But I've done this uh, several times. This is usually the focus of this lesson. These two words, good tidings of great joy. Instead, what I'll do is I'll refer you back to the lesson last year. If you'd like to hear more about this, this is where our word gospel comes from. Yeah, are these two words good tidings? And these shepherds would have been calmed by this because they would have immediately recognized the phrase from Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 52, and uh, other places in the scriptures where God talks about the two main endings to the verses that begin with good tidings. And they are, Behold your God, and thy God reigneth. In other words, good tidings is meant to deliver news about the Messiah, about God himself, being on the earth, and being in charge. And so when a Jew hears these words, he thinks back to Isaiah, and these words trigger that awareness that the blessed day has come. It's a big deal to hear this. And the words were combined into one word in ancient Latin, and then uh, that process was duplicated in English to get the word gospel. So more about that in, uh, in, our, in our podcast episode last year on Isaiah chapter 40. Um, in, in verse 16, so the, the, here are the shepherds having this wonderful experience where they, a host of angels appears to them and sings, praising God in the highest and singing all these wonderful songs. And this is what we think of when we think of Christmas night. We think of the angels appearing to the shepherds and the Joseph and Mary in the, in the stable and shepherds and wise men appearing, everybody, everybody congregating and worshiping Jesus. So interesting now, the, the shepherds haste to see the things that the angels have described. They might have been a couple of miles or who knows how far from Bethlehem. They, they run into town and they find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now, the, the way it's described is that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes. So Mary gives birth to Jesus and it says that she is the one to do it, meaning there might not have been any help for her to bear this child, and 
there they are, Joseph and Mary and Jesus alone, and in burst a group of shepherds. Now, the thing that occurred to me that has never occurred to me before is Mary and Joseph didn't get to see any angels at all. Nothing, nothing happened to them except what happens to every couple that gives birth, especially the first time. The mother is extremely scared. What's going to happen to me? I don't know what birth is like. And she gets through this difficult, painful process somehow with the, only the help of her husband. She's in, a, she's in a filthy surroundings, but finds a way to make do. And then all of a sudden, in burst a group of strangers who want to see her baby. And who knows, who knows how their manners were. They were probably very reverent. But we don't, we don't know. We don't have that in the story. It seems a little intrusive that on the, on the night of her child's birth, here she is recovering from this painful process, taking a moment to herself for the first time in, in forever, and then a group of shepherds burst in and want to see her child. And they, I'm sure as Mary listened to her, her, their story, she thinks they have a right to see her child. So right away... This, this process, this moment, is, is no longer about Mary. There have been times in the story, right? Mary gets a vision from Gabriel. Mary makes a, an important decision. Mary is honored by her cousin Elizabeth. And the baby within Elizabeth ju- leaps for joy within the womb. But all of a sudden now, this is no longer about Mary. It's no longer Mary's story. It's no longer Joseph's story. It's now Jesus' story. And so Mary shares this sacred special night with a bunch of strangers, and then they go off rejoicing. And she's left to just think about it. As it says, she, she ponders these things in her heart. So they go to the temple. Simeon, an old man who is, has had a revelation from God that he can see the Messiah before he dies. And what does Simeon do? Simeon snatches up the baby and praises God, doesn't talk to Mary and Joseph, but praises God and says, God, all of a sudden starts saying these strange things. God, you can now let me die, right? I've seen the salvation. Now, it's a wonderful thing to say about, to have said about your baby, but all of a sudden, isn't it strange that it, 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 it seems like a very strange experience? Oh, excuse me, can I, can I hold your baby? Wow, whatever. No, Simeon, Simeon immediately makes it about the baby, not about the parents anymore. And then he gives Mary this part blessing, part curse. And he says, oh, you know, you're blessed as well, but a sword will be run through your own heart also. Now, thanks a lot, Simeon. Thanks a lot, strange prophet guy who took my baby, praised God, and then told me how terrible things would be for me in the future. Isn't that an interesting experience? They would have, uh, Mary would have, would have felt uh, obviously honored and also a little bit put off, I imagine, by the whole thing. And also doesn't talk to them, or, or at least the scriptures don't have a record of Anna talking to them. She's a prophetess, somebody who has spent years just worshiping in the temple, a holy woman. But she, she takes this baby and immediately praises God, and then makes a spectacle of Jesus and says, Look, everyone, look at your salvation. This is your, this is your Messiah. And Mary and Joseph are like, hey, that's our child. We're, you know, hold it a minute. <laughs> we did, did you ask us if you could show our child to the entire crowd? So maybe that's a, a little bit of a modern take on how they were feeling. Maybe privacy wasn't as important to Mary and Joseph as it would be to one of us. But I, I kind of felt violated for them, uh, for the, some of the events that are going on here. I thought... Mary and Joseph are having a child, and Mary and Joseph are taking their child to the temple for the first time, as they're commanded to do for all firstborn children. And what instead what happens? Everybody all of a sudden makes it all about the child rather than, can I have your permission, parents, to do this thing, to, to look at your child, to make a spectacle of your child? I don't know whether that was intended by Luke. Finally, in verse 46, Mary and Joseph take take Jesus to the temple when he's 12 years old. And they go every year as observant Jews do to the temple. And they're leaving after, and they, they're they gone overnight. They come back. Jesus, they look for him three days. And Jesus has been in the temple the whole time. 
And I thought, where's Jesus been sleeping for three days? Who's he been staying with? And obviously they don't, the scripture doesn't go into that. But um, once again, this is kind of a story about what's happening with Jesus. We're all wondering, what was Jesus talking about in the temple with these, with these learned men? What was he discussing? What was he teaching them? What were they teaching him? And instead, all of a sudden, once again, it's not about Mary and Joseph anymore. So it was for me an interesting experience, an interesting exercise to transfer my point of view from being an onlooker to these events and doing the same thing that everyone does. Say, oh, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Here's the Christ child. And instead to try to walk through this experience from the point of view of Mary and Joseph. And why did I do that? Over and over again in this chapter, it says, Mary took all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary took all these things and pondered them in their heart. Turn back to the first chapter of Luke, and you will see at the very beginning in the first four verses, Luke explains, as we discussed last time, Luke explains exactly how he wrote his book. And the way he did it was, he talked to the eyewitnesses and the servants. It's not exactly um, rendered this way in the King James Version, but the servants of the word are these people who are charged with the stories of the, of the New Testament, of Jesus, who would have been known locally as the most qualified reteller of any given account. So Luke, in other words, compiled a biography, and he would have traveled around talking to as many people as he could. How would he have known what Mary took and pondered in, in her heart? To me, this seems to be saying that, but Mary, if we were to, if we were to think about this in, in a, maybe a little bit more modern language, but Mary really wondered at that. That that caused Mary to sit back and think a lot, and she and she always remembered that, right? Then if that would be a real clue to the reader, that Mary was the key source for this chapter. So what Luke is really saying is, I've talked to Mary about all of this, and here's what she was thinking. She was thinking that was really strange, that was really strange, and that was really strange. That's kind of how I read the chapter of Luke too this time around. Uh, let's go a little bit farther uh, and talk about Jesus' humble beginnings. So obviously Jesus, the the descendant of King David, but born in a main, born in a stable and, and placed in a manger. So a king should have the best, right? A king should live in a palace, but Jesus had the worst. A kingdom should prize strength. What, what One of the key ideas we're going to be coming up with up against very, very soon is Jesus's idea of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so that's, that's sort of the, the ultimate ideal for a kingdom is to prize strength. But Jesus prized poorness of, of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. A king should be served by all, but Jesus served all. And so Luke, by showing us the humble genesis, as Matthew put it, the humble genesis of Jesus, is setting the stage to, for Jesus to teach about his upside-down, what's called the upside-down kingdom of heaven, this, this totally inverted kingdom that Jesus will start teaching. So when he's called king of the Jews, it's entirely accurate, but he's also king of everyone in this upside-down inverted way. That's totally opposite of the way that the world does kingdoms, and it's very much on purpose. So we've we've just been primed by by witnessing how strange the birth of Jesus is and how non-king-like it is. We've been primed to understand, or at least to begin to understand, the teachings of Jesus about his kingdom. So let's continue some of these uh, some of these themes as we talk about Matthew chapter two. Now, if Luke chapter 2 was bad, it shows that uh, the experience of Jesus' birth was less than ideal for Joseph and Mary, then Matthew chapter 2 is infinitely worse. Now, before we get into some of the, the most awful aspects of their experience, let's, let's talk about the story of the, of the Magi. Um, it's only found in Matthew, and it's, it's really interesting. First of all, we, for, for whatever reason, it's always been shown that the, depicted as being three wise men kind of traveling in alone. Um, first of all, these wise men arrive from the east, 
which means that they traveled over the desert and they traveled over the desert with great wealth. So we know this is this is just logical. This can be this can be directly inferred from the scriptural account. They traveled in large numbers. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, three of the most precious substances of the ancient Near East, and they brought it over the one of the most dangerous patches of ground that existed. And so they would have had to have a military-style caravan to do so. Some people have theorized that their, their numbers were anywhere as, up to 100. And so there are, there's this huge um, contingent of men and uh, many, most of them scholars, all of them worshipers, arriving. And uh, anyway, so, so don't think of the wise men as three wise men. They had three gifts. They had three different gifts that are mentioned, and they probably had a few, uh, quite a few others as well. But they had the richest of gifts. <coughs> now these wise men came to Herod to ask him where they should go to find the king of the Jews. <laughs> Life tip. Uh, bad idea. Herod was the king of the Jews, and he wasn't interested in hearing about other king, kings of Jews. And so, uh, obviously, this touched off a series of events. But um, a few things are worth noting. Number one, the wise men showed up at the right place at the right time. And they had some sort of, they, they reported that they'd been following the star. So they, they had some sort of supernatural guide in this supernatural guide had given them correct information. Secondly, they were worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and seekers of the Messiah, seekers of someone who had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So, followers of Yahweh and people who had correct information, doesn't this tell us that these wise men had a prophet? Third, uh, four times in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew points out, um, and, and thus it was done that the words of the prophet X might be fulfilled, or the words of the prophet might be fulfilled. And sometimes he fill, fills in the, the quotation or citation from the Old Testament. So Matthew's very interested, if, when he can, to tie in an Old Testament reference. And yet with the wise men, Matthew does no such thing. So all of these things lead inescapable, inescapably to the conclusion that somewhere in the East, quote-unquote, there is a nation powerful enough to send rich, a rich caravan across a dangerous stretch of desert with uh, a large amount of worldly goods that are worshiping Yahweh and have prophets. That is the inescapable conclusion of the arrival of these wise men. Isn't that fascinating? And there's no... There's no record of these people in the Old Testament, at least from what Matthew could see and what we can see. Um, so that's just an interesting thing. There, here is evidence in the scriptures of people worshiping the same God of the scriptures who have their own prophets and presumably their own scriptures, and yet no contact, and then they disappear as quickly as they came. Just an interesting side note, and we don't know anything else about them. But let's get to the real point of Matthew chapter 2, because there's an overarching theme here. And we're going to hit uh, two aspects of it. First of all, um, very painful, painful events in the lives of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. So, as I said, this the arrival of these wise men touch off persecution, the likes of with which Joseph and, and Mary have not ever seen. Uh, just like, well, well, we'll talk about a parallel for this, but Herod decides that uh, he's going to consult his own wise men, and he's going to find out when the wise men don't return, he's going to find out where they went, and then he is going to kill every child because he can't find out, figure out exactly who this uh, prophesied king of the Jews is. He's going he's gonna to cover all his bets and kill everyone. And interestingly, Joseph has another dream warning him that he should take a course of action. And what does Joseph do? This is, I think this is really, really important for us to understand. Um, Joseph wakes from his dream, and it says, in the night, they left. So Joseph didn't wake from his dream, you know, talk about it with Mary over breakfast, take a couple of days to decide what they should do. 
He wakes up in the middle of the night from his dream. He wakes up Mary and the baby and says, we're leaving right now. And they get up and go. Now, we don't have scriptural account of exactly when Herod's soldiers arrived, but they may, may well have arrived the next morning. And tragically enough, God didn't warn that. And, and this, this, if this doesn't bother you, then uh, I, don't, I suppose you're not thinking about it enough. There is a whole village full of people that God didn't warn. You know, God, it was important to God for God's plans to get Jesus, Jesus out of town. Then the implication, the other side of that implication is uh, it also was God's plans for a lot of children to be killed. Isn't that interesting? So we're going to discuss that. That's, that's deep in this chapter is what does that mean? But um, we, we can discuss that by talking about what it meant for Mary and Joseph. So what, it, what has happened to Mary over the last several months? She's had uh, an unwed pregnancy. She's had the scandal of that, the loss of her reputation, being displaced from her home, having to give birth for the first time in very uncouth circumstances, unsupervised, and then had a bunch of strangers. Uh, she feels like the course of her life has almost been taken out of her own hands. And then what should happen, but that she is... Uh, and then a, and then a lot of strange people from a foreign country come and, and shower them with wealth. And then they, they leave it all behind, and, presumably, and have to run off into the desert in the middle of the night. Then they find out they're living in another strange land, even stranger, far away in Egypt, 500 miles from home. And they find out that everyone that they had gotten to know over the last couple of years has, has had a baby. Everyone with a baby the, the age of her same child has had that baby killed because of her, because of her child. And this is a tra- This is an awful, awful life. This is a terrible series of events for Mary. Mary hates her life. She looks at her life. I, I, that's a very strong statement because I don't know her attitude, but I, I, can, I know what my attitude would be. I, I know that I would look at my life and say, life is awful. Life is really hard. God said he was going to bless me. I said I was willing to take upon myself whatever he sent. And then now it's terrible. Things are awful. Uh, so what, what is the point? And, and, and I'm kind of tying Matthew and Luke together here. Things are not what I expected. You know, my life is no longer about me and, and events are spiraling out of my control and I don't know what's going on and I have no trust that things are going to go well at all. People have even prophesied to me that I'm going to have a sword run through my heart. And uh, as it turns out, symbolically, but still. So the, my point that I take from it is this. Uh, we, we talked about last week that Jesus, Matthew points out that Jesus is, uh, Jesus is born that the words might be fulfilled that God is with us. And we think that that means, oh, God is gonna, God is gonna pull us out of our sorrows. He's gonna bless us so that we can overcome our our trials. And instead, what we see is when it when it looks like uh, things are all screwed up and there's no possible way this can be part of the plan. Matthew Matthew's saying that is God's plan. Here's what here's what God Himself did. God is going with us through that very feeling, through that very experience of life being broken. That is what Matthew 2 is telling us, is that life is broken for everyone, even for God. God is willing to to walk through that experience. Secondly, four times, uh, as I mentioned, Matthew says in this chapter um, that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet, and then he he says what's written by the prophet. So um, in verse 15... When Jesus, when Jesus's family flees to Egypt, um, Matthew says that it might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So you follow the footnote to that, and you and you find yourself in Hosea chapter eleven, which further points you to Exodus. And I and I suggest you follow this. It points you to Exodus chapter four, verses twenty-two and twenty-three, where Moses is given the direction to go into to Pharaoh and say, look, Israel is my firstborn son. Look, Pharaoh, I, God, Israel is my firstborn son. If you don't let my firstborn son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. 
And this is long before the plagues of Egypt. You may be unfamiliar with this particular passage because it's not part of the, uh, the, the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments narrative. It's not front and center on the marquee. But this is very clearly God saying, Israel is my firstborn son. And what is Matthew doing with this verse is he is likening, and we did this, if you've been listening for a while, then you heard our um, t- six antecedents of Isaiah special episode last year around September time. And that in that episode, we talked about how the, the Old Testament is quite often speaking on more than one context, more than one layer at a time. And these overlapping layers are the temple, the, sa- the life of the Savior, the history of Israel, and uh, our eternal progress and other things. And so what uh, this is proof that the life of the Savior and the history of the nation of Israel are one. When, e- when Matthew here says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And then observant Jews are going to go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, wasn't, wasn't Moses brought up in the same sort of circumstance where there was a prophecy about a king? And so the, an, uh, the existing king, an, an evil man who hated the Jews, what did he do? Oh, yeah, he sent some people to kill all of the children of a certain age. And then they're led out they're led out of Egypt and they are 40 years in the wilderness and then oh, what happens they pass over the river Jordan and then they're and then they come into Jerusalem and then they are wicked and and destroyed and then what does Matthew follow this this very um, citation with a story of Jesus going into the wilderness coming out of Egypt going into the wilderness for 40 not 40 years but for 40 days and then coming to the River Jordan to be baptized, and then the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being destroyed. And the only difference is Jesus has a resurrection that turns everything around. So, so this, this verse right here is uh, Matthew tipping his hand and showing exactly what the, what the book of Matthew is all about. He is saying to everyone, Jesus is God's attempt to fix what was broken in Israel. And in this time, he finally succeeds. So the, the Old Testament is a series of failures uh, in the perspective of the Jews of this time. Adam and Eve, God tries to form a, a couple that is going to follow God's directions. Then they have the fall. Noah, he's going to try with all of, he's going to try with all of mankind to make a righteous people. They're all wicked, so he has a he has a flood. Noah, he starts again with Noah. Um, then they're wicked, so he chooses Abraham, and he says, I'm going to choose one particular people, and you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and he sends commandments through Moses. But then they he leads them into the promised land, and they're wicked, and he sends them into exile. And so again and again, God says, I'm not going to let you fail. You, people, I love you all too much to give up. And finally, with Matthew, Matthew is saying... God is going to have another try at all of this. He's going to take another run at doing everything he's done before, but this time he's going to do it right. He's, going to, he's gone from having all of mankind to one single nation to counting on only one person. And it's only one person who can get it right, which is God himself. This is, this is the culmination of not just uh, the believing Christian's creed, but all of the scriptures Matthew is showing that they all point to Jesus and Jesus gets it right. Very fascinating. This is right here in this verse, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, so then he, and he, and he kind of brings that home a little more in, chap, in verse 18 when he says um, that he describes the children being killed and then he quotes Jeremiah who says, a voice out of Rama, Rachel weeping for her children. Now the voice out of Rama is... Um, Rama is where the Israelites were carried off into, into Babylon. And Rachel weeping for her children is a reference to Rachel. When Rachel died, she died in childbirth, and she's weeping for her children she's leaving behind, and she, she sort of names her final son, son of my suffering. And her husband, Jacob, who, who can't bear to have his child named that for the rest of his life, names him 
son of the right hand, Benjamin. And uh, the point is, Rachel is a is a symbol for the mother of all of Israel, and she's weeping for her children being led away captive into exile. But the very next verse in Jeremiah is that, but I will bring them all back from exile. And, and Matthew is saying, finally, you know, the, the, uh, the mother, if you will, of the entire nation, all the mothers are weeping for their children. All of humanity, all the mothers of humanity are weeping for their children because of sin. And the very next verse here is Jesus is saved and so that he can save us. Jesus is carried away into Egypt so that he can come back and rescue everyone. We'll all return from exile because of Jesus. Uh, very fascinating symbolism by Matthew that Jesus carries, is already picking up the burden of all humanity, picking up the burden of Israel, and by extension, all humanity by the end of the book. And that's, the, that's the, really the message of Matthew chapter 2, and, it, and it has, it's thematically similar to Luke, in my opinion, to Luke chapter 2, which is we think that um, because things are broken for us, that somehow we're off the track, that God had a plan for us and we screwed it up and there's no getting back. Matthew chapter 2 should be a very strong message to us that no, that's not the case. When life is broken, then we can look in that and see that God is with us. The name Emmanuel, at the, at the end, this is really just a continuation from Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, he says, It was fulfilled, that was written by the prophet, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God isn't, God isn't with us when he pulls us out of our problems. That's not the way that he does it. He gets down in the trenches with us. And as, it's, and as Nephi saw, the, the love of God is manifested through his condescension to live the way that we live, which is in a broken state where things are not what we expect, where there's suffering all around and where nothing is going right. That is God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ himself, leaving the heavens to manifest himself as a man who would, who would be the, the king of this upside-down kingdom where he carries the burdens of all, suffers for all, serves all, receives honor from none, and has no beauty that we would desire him. And that is the very powerful message of Matthew chapter 2. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.